Hello, welcome to Bookworms. I'm your host, Alex. And I'm Joe. And this is the show where we read books and then talk about the books that we just read. Yep. How you doing today, Joe? I'm doing good. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing well. I finished this book just a little while ago, and I am just—I'm really excited to read uh, to talk about it with all of you guys. Yeah, I finished it a few days ago, so I'm a little bit better than Alex. I make him—I'm uh, the one that sets the deadlines, basically trying to force Alex to actually finish these books. Otherwise, he'd still be on Anansi Boys. Yeah. yeah, Joe's the one who sets the deadlines, and I'm the one who watches them go by. Yeah. The struggle is real. Alright, Joe, what what book did we read this time? Well, I picked Night Watch by Terry Pratchett. And this was the second time I've read this book. First time, it left a major impression. Second time, still a major impression. What about you, Alex? What do you think? Yes, this is my second read-through. I feel like the first time I read it, I kind of glazed over it. I was just kind of turning the pages, looking at words picked up some of the story i'm like oh this is a good story it's really good reading it this time going more in depth it's a ton of fun it's a great book not to not to spoil my opinions that we give at the end but it's a great book yeah it is great but it's still probably my favorite Discworld book for sure i mean i gotta reread a bunch of them rereading this was such a pleasure i'm like i should reread all 800 books in the Discworld series yes terry pratchett noted no very notably uh very prolific yeah, uh, but before we hit record, me and Alex were talking. I was watching an interview of Terry Pratchett and Sir Terry Pratchett. He was knighted by the the former Queen Queenie, but I guess yes, Queen Queenie knighted him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he uh, when he wrote his first book was that Color of Magic, Alex? Yeah, the first Discworld book. Yeah, Color yeah. of Magic. Well, that was his first book he published. Oh, no kidding. And he put the second one out, and they sold just well enough that he was able to go to his wife and say, hey, I can do this for a living. I'm going to quit my job in journalism and just do this full time. And he did. And then he started writing two books a year because he felt that if this was going to be his his job, his career, he should take it seriously like he did the journalism stuff and actually not be one of those authors, George R. R. Martin, that puts out a book maybe every decade. So he started putting out two a year, realized he still had time in his days. So he started putting out three a year, did that for about five, seven years, realized that that was a bit tough, burned himself out. So he went back to two and basically did that till the day he died. So he has a, he has a lot of books. Discworld series, I think, is, I, I forgot to look at it on Goodreads, but I'm pretty sure it's in the 30s or 40s for the number of books. Yeah, and he was also very, he wrote a lot of stuff outside of Discworld as well. Probably did another 15, 20 books outside of Discworld. And he wrote for all ages. He had kids' books, young adult stuff, and uh, also marketed towards adults as well. He specialized definitely in uh, very dry British humor. Very dry British humor, but as we all love Monty Python, because who can't? This is the guy that fits with them perfectly, I think. Yep. And as a professional podcaster, I'm doing research on the fly. He, there are 41 Discworld novels. 41. Okay, I was, I was right there. You're a little off. I said 30 to 40. Now, for those of you who don't know about what the Discworld novels are, maybe Joe, as a Terry Pratchett expert, can offer an explanation in five words or less. Five words or less. I, I think I can do it, actually. We got Disc, Four Elephants, Giant Turtle. What's below the turtle? 
space. Let's blow the turtle. No, there, it's, it's a it, disc on four elephants standing on a turtle. It's turtles all the way down. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you forgot that one, huh? <laughs> oh, you got me. So anyways, so Nightwatch. This is a little bit later in the series. The good thing about the Discworld series is you really don't have to read them in order. Within the series, there's a lot of sub-series. This one is towards the end of the Nightwatch series that follows Sam Vimes and his illustrious career. And his crew of just quirky, quirky coppers. Yes. So, do we want to get into it or do we want to keep gilding the lily here? Is that what we're calling it these days? Yeah, let's jump <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump in. Right. What, what would you call it, Alex? <laughs> Polishing the pewter, perhaps. <laughs> so, Alex wants to get into the very opening paragraph here, as he is wont to do with a lot of these stories, to either bash it or gush over it. Which is it going to be today, Alex? Well, as much as I hated the opening line to The Coldest Girl in Cold Town, I equally adore the opening sentences to this book, because it does such a wonderful job of setting up the tone for this novel. It begins with Sam Vimes sighed when he heard the scream, but he finished shaving before he did anything about it. Then he put his jacket on and strolled out into the wonderful late spring morning. Birds sang in the trees, bees buzzed in the blossom. The sky was hazy, though, and thunderheads on the horizon threatened rain later. But for now, the air was hot and heavy, and in the old cesspit behind the gardener's shed, a young man was treading water. So, I like this because it's pure chaos. Like, there's people screaming, there's uh, the main character, he's just kind of nonchalant about it. He's like, whatever, I've got to finish this up real quick, and then I'll go check that out. And then the descriptions that come after that, it starts out with these beautiful descriptions of a wonderful spring morning, and there's birds and bees, and but then it immediately goes to, like, Oh, but it's getting hazy. There's a storm on the way, and there's a guy trapped in a cesspit. It goes from like beautiful to crazy to kind of gross, and everywhere in between in a matter of like eight lines of text. Yeah, Terry Pratchett is a master of chaos. A lot of his Discworld novels, when I read them, basically the first 50 pages, I just assume I'm going to have no clue what's going on because there's just so much being thrown at you. It's so crazy and hectic. And then you get all the way through and you start to realize, hey, I understand what the beginning of the book was now. That it all comes together. This one isn't quite as bad as that. Yeah, there's not a ton of mystery until we get to the time travel aspect of the story. The beginning, the guy in the cesspit's an assassin. And it's there to kind of establish Sam Vimes' reputation in the community. And also the setup for the assassin's. Because that becomes an important feature later in the book. Yeah, so essentially, Vimes, he's this police constable. He's recently been made a duke. He's recently married. Uh, he's a bit older. He's in his 50s or so. Yeah, his wife's also older, and she's having a difficult birth. Yeah, as I said, this is like book three or four in the Nightwatch series. So if you want to learn about his history, you'll definitely need to read those other ones. But this picks up right where they left off where Vimes had moved from basically bottom-of-the-barrel gutter rat Night Watch, which the Night Watch, before before he became 
the commander of it, was basically the joke of the city. And he sobered up and turned the whole organization around and made it a modern police force, essentially. Yeah, he's responsible for ending a lot of police corruption and improving the the visage of... Uh, the respectability. Yeah, the respectability of the police force in the capital city of Discworld, Ankh-Morpork. The, the names in this are almost James Bond, and they're on the nose. Yeah, uh, the guy likes his silly names. Yes, yes. Very British, I, I gather. <laughs> so, anything else you want to talk about that? Because otherwise I got to paragraph i would like to read oh please go uh this is on page five to six for our copies that we were reading which are just the standard paperback copies and the reason why i'm reading this paragraph is it just it throws in again eight lines ten lines of text it throws just how much terry pratchett can throw at you so quote the plain old sam vimes had fought back he got rid of most of the plumes and the stupid tights and ended up with a dress uniform that at least looked as though it was its owner was male. But the helmet had gold decoration, and the bespoke armorers had made a new gleaming breastplate with useless gold ornamentation on it. Sam Vimes felt like a class traitor every time he wore it. He hated being thought of as one of those people that wore stupid ornamental armor. It was guilt by association. Guilt spelled G-I-L-T. Yeah, there's a little pun in there. Yeah. Well, the reason why that paragraph stuck out to me was it said in that one paragraph you're tackling the male eagle, femininity versus masculinity, the class struggle, and the problematic display of wealth, and all the while keeping it funny and loose and comical and not very serious, which is definitely a problem we have these days. People can't take things with a joke anymore, but they said this, this is done perfectly. doesn't offend anybody, but it hits a lot of nail heads right down to the, 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 the plank there you know this this book kind of getting into the more serious aspect it does cover a lot of like really dark themes throughout it. it talks about government corruption and police brutality but it does so in a way like it never lets up on the kind of lampooning of these things and kind of never it never stops being funny it's it's very well done yeah and it, it definitely doesn't offend anyone while making everyone laugh and you know if you miss a lot of the deeper stuff great it's still a book that you can enjoy if you want to dig in it's something you can be rah 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 but still giggling about it and not taking things too seriously which is definitely good so yeah we've we've touched on sam vimes a little bit you know he's the commander of the watch you know this book is definitely you know this whole sub-series is focused on him and this is get thrown a lot of characters at you in this book. That's, that's my one complaint in this book is just how many characters you get thrown at. And you get a lot of characters you've never heard of before because of the time travel thing. And a lot of the characters are there very briefly, but sometimes they play an important role. But they're only there for a short period of time. Yeah, a lot of them are much heavily featured in the other Night Watch books. So like Carrot and Agnew and forget some of the other names there's just so many of them they're really the only characters that you meet in the first little bit that have any real have any real relevance to the story are sergeant uh, Sar- uh, colin uh, corporal nobby knobs yeah nobby knobs and then of course the our primary antagonist uh, carcer 
Yeah, Carcer. Carcer is the bad guy, the big bad in this one. Yeah, he's a serial killer, cop killer, bad dude. Yeah, I, I kind of likened him to uh, Clockwork Orange Alex, if Alex had gone off the rails instead of aged out of it. He, he's just that kind of over-the-top evil. Yeah, so he's uh, kind of like, he's the Joker to Vimes as Batman. They have one's, you know, law and order, and the other is complete and utter chaos and violence for violence sake. And he's like Vimes' arch nemesis. He's the true sociopath, psychopath that sees no wrong other than what he wants to gain from it. Yeah, the beginning of the novel, kind of, I guess we can call it part one. There's no actual like chapters or parts in this entire thing. There's like a little section breaks whenever there's a change in scenery. But yeah, we can kind of divide it to like the present, then there's the past, and then there's the present again. So the present it culminates in a police chase. Vimes chases uh, Car Circus, a rooftop. Really cool, uh, really cool, well done foot chase. That uh, ends with them on top of a wizarding school during a storm. Yeah. And so I'm going to, before we even get there, I'm going to read a few more quotes because I just, there's, I'm going to be reading a lot of quotes of this, this podcast because there's just so many funny things that I enjoyed. Yeah, get cozy, everyone. This is going to be a long episode. Yeah, you're welcome. Joe loves this book. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell. So th- this is going to kind of introduce Col- Sergeant Colin and Corporal Nobby. And kind of the the way the police force works now, and kind of give you a hint on where it came from. You know, we ought to come up here one day with a billy hook and clear this lot up a bit, said the sergeant. You always say that, Sarge, every year, said Nobby, as they walked away, and we never do. If I had a dollar for every copper's funeral I've attended up here, said Colin, I'd have nineteen dollars and fifty pence. Fifty pence, said Nobby? That was when Corporal Hilda Biddle woke up just in time and banged on the lid, said Colin. That was before your time, of course. Everyone said it was an amazing recovery. Yeah, just definitely funny. And this is when they're reflecting on people that have died. This is setting up just you know how many coppers have died for, for them and kind of just that, that police brotherhood that they have. And they're also reflecting on a riot that happened 30 years ago. That left a lot of police officers dead. Yeah. Okay, and this the second quote I'm going to go into. We, we get some characters that are big in the other books. This is kind of where the watch has gone to since Vimes took over and brought in more morally sound characters to, to help enforce the law. And what does this all mean to us? Probably more refugees, sir. Ye gods, we've got no more room. Why do they keep coming here? In search of a better life, sir, I think. A better life, said Vimes. Here? I think things are worse where they come from, sir, said Carrot. What kind of refugees are we talking about here? Mostly human, sir. Do you mean that most of them will be human, or that each individual will be mostly human, said Vimes. After a while on Ankmore Pork, you learn to phrase that kind of question. Er, apart from the humans, the only species I'd heard of there in any numbers are the Kvetch, sir. They live in the deep woods and are all covered in hair. Really? Well, we'll probably find out more about them when we're asked to employ one of them in the watch, said Vimes sourly. So again, this is kind of touching on a lot of subjects here. I felt it was kind of pertinent to our uh, current crisis in the United States, if you ask certain people of a certain political persuasion about the the people trying to cross the border. And the, the way that 
Terry Pratchett handles it in this book I thought was pretty good where it's like, yeah, they can be annoying, but it's also a good thing. And the more you get to know them, the more you learn about them, and they just kind of fold into your society. But yeah, you know, and then the Night Watch has become become a bastion of minorities being employed because that was something that Vimes felt was important. And in the story, you you find out that he he heavily relies on these different people. Like he has trolls on the force, and he's always when he goes back in time, and he doesn't have that brute strength anymore. He's always bemoaning it. Or he has uh, the gnome that flies the the, the birds. And, you know, his observations from the, the sky and signals them to tell them what Carcer's up to or what other bad guys are doing. And when he goes back in time, he's constantly wishing that he had that aspect. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, he's, uh, he worked, Vimes as a character has worked very hard for creating this inclusive environment within the watch so that everybody in the city feels like they have their best interests at heart and they feel protected he's a very very noble and just character in that way and he he acts all gruff like he can't stand it but at the same time he he understands that this is making everything a better place and he just he's like your typical old man that just grumbles and complains but in the end he he actually prefers the 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 new way to the old way that's the way he created so we get to carcer and vimes on the roof detris the troll Blows some holes into some things, but doesn't actually. Detritus. And Carrot, he's the uh, altruistic cop, has to be kind of left out because Vimes isn't keeps hinting that he isn't sure if he's going to let Carcer live and be arrested or just kill him and be done with it as they would have done in the old watch. This is moral conflict at the start of the novel because Carcer's done some really horrible things. And, and he knows that it's basically a dead man walking anyways and it would save everybody a lot of time and possibly save a lot of lives yeah. if he just killed the guy yeah. good uh, saving of taxpayer money so we get into the we meet some wizards here so carcer is caught by vimes they're on the rooftop and then the rooftop gets hit by lightning and all of a sudden they're not there anymore and we've got a naked wizard and this is the first time that uh, we get some uh, tasteful nudity in this book i do want to touch on I was mentioning this, we were talking about this before we started recording too, like Pratchett's really, really good with uh, using like body humor to dispel like tense scenes. And so there's this whole rooftop chase, there's a fight, there's knives, there's lightning bolts. And then to kind of lighten the, lighten the mood a little bit, they're trying to figure out what the heck just happened. And the main wizard at the wizarding school it just comes out naked, and he's trying to explain about magic and stuff to a bunch of dim-witted police officers. And what you find with the, the magic in Discworld, it's a really odd mixture of science and just pure magic. And it, it, kind of, it comes off as just so goofy, especially since you have the, the, the old-style wizard, which is all just magic, 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 and the new-style wizard, which kind of espousing science and technology. We also meet the librarian, and this is an interesting character in the series, and it brought on a whole actual thing because they rang uh, the, the librarians an orangutan. He was a w- human wizard that, through the magic of the library, got turned, and nobody could figure out how to turn him back. And he eventually decided he liked being an orangutan better than a human. All the bananas that he could eat and swinging around just, just worked out better. And he talks by saying "ook." And unintentionally, what Terry Pratchett did was he ended up starting this whole movement to save 
the orangutans on our planet, Round World, as it's referred to in the series, and because they're an endangered species, and Terry Pratchett became a major advocate for saving orangutans, and he traveled basically all over the world trying to save these wonderful creatures. So, you know, shout out to that. Yeah, it was really cool. Little thing where, like, just something you write has this, almost unintentionally has this major change, or causes a major change. And he originally wrote it just because he thought it would be a funny joke. And he didn't, he didn't know anything about orangutans, <laughs> other yeah. than they were kind of cute and kind of goofy looking. Yeah. And that leads us into basically what becomes the bulk of the novel, the novel proper, where Sam Vimes finds himself 30 years in the past, um, a couple of days before the riot breaks out that claimed the lives of a bunch of coppers. Yeah, we find out that the the guy that young Sam Vimes had idolized got murdered by Carcer before he was supposed to, but because of Vimes' injuries when trying to capture Carcer, he looks exactly like who his mentor was. Yep, so he has to, in order to preserve the timeline, he has to be a mentor to himself. Pretending he's this guy named John Keel. Yeah, then he he basically he comes into this version of the night watch that is everything that he has worked to change because it and they're corrupt he gets pulled over by cops and they're trying to force extort him for bribes and they, it's a regular practice there and it's lo- loaded with just crooked cops there's police brutality everywhere and he sees a younger version of himself starting to go down that path where he's gonna you know t- get, get make sure he gets a little bit for himself Pratchett definitely has a interesting view on cops, and he's walking a fine line. He's taking cops that probably recognize from 17th century, late 1800s kind of TV show. Uh, what's that? Was it Ripper Street? That show? Yeah. Yeah. It's something you'd almost recognize the, these cops as those cops. You know, yeah, you definitely get like old timey cop show vibes. Yeah, it's just you know old, old London English cops that have no problem beating on witnesses, extorting money. And the only reason why they're cops is because they're slightly less corrupt than the criminals that they're chasing after. But he also at the same time shows that the cops are humans and just a product of their environment. The Night Watch is in a very violent part of town, and they're dealing with the the lowest uh, stratosphere of the, the general public. They have other police forces that police the more uh, wealthy Ankh side of the city because the city split by a river and Ankh is on one side, more pork is on the other, and more pork is kind of the, the white chapel of the, the city where it's all alleyways and tight roads and just poverty everywhere. Throughout the book, you get these vibe, like Pratchett's laying out exactly what he thinks a police officer's role in society is about like two-thirds of the way through he has this whole page on it's basically i kind of read it as like his thesis statement because a bunch of shit's about to hit the fan and they have to they don't know what to do and then it just goes into vimes's inner monologue like they say what are we going to do sarge and he like just thinks keep the peace that was the thing people often fail to understand what that meant you go to some life-threatening disturbance, like a couple of neighbors scrapping in the street over who owned the hedge between their properties, and they'd both be bursting with aggrieved self-righteousness, both yelling. Their wives would either ha- be having a private scrap on the side, or would have adjourned to a kitchen for a shared pot of tea and a chat, and they all expected you to sort it out. 
and they could never understand that it wasn't your job. Sorting it out was a job for a good surveyor and a couple of lawyers, maybe. Your job was to quell the impulse to bang their stupid fat heads together, to ignore the affronted speeches of dodgy self-justification, to get them to stop shouting, and to get them off the street. Once that had been achieved, your job was over. You weren't some walking god dispensing finely tuned natural justice. Your job was simply to bring back peace. Of course, if your few strict words didn't work and Mr. Smith subsequently clambered over the disputed fence and stabbed Mr. Jones to death with a pair of gardening shears, then you'd have a different job, sorting out the notorious hedge argument murder. But at least it was one you were trained to do. People expected all kinds of things from coppers, but there was one thing that sooner or later they all wanted. Make this not be happening. Yeah, that was definitely something I had highlighted out there too, I think. What what I kind of quoted out for the Vimes looking, you know, kind of reflecting back as he's first kind of reintegrating himself into his old watch was that all the good old days back in the day, you know, when you think back to when you first started or joined a organization or right before you joined, you hear all the crazy stories of what happened, the, the drinking beers and the parties and all that stuff. You know, this is a quote. Vimes knew them in his soul. They were the night watch because they were too scruffy, ugly, incompetent, awkwardly shaped, or bloody-minded for the day watch. They were honest in that special policeman sense of the word. That is, they didn't steal things too heavy to carry. And they had the morale of damp gingerbread. Yeah, it kind of gives you, you know, like that, that good old days of you know, everything was better even though it was just worse. And This is that nostalgia factor, like even if it sucked it was it was your suck yeah, yeah. It was your ver- special version of suck yeah so yeah the novel goes on vimes in a short amount of time kind of cleans up the night watch there's uh acts of brutality coming like police brutality and uh, fighting between coppers and townsfolk uh in other places in the city and vimes is trying to keep his district calm and he's like showing a new way that you can interact with people to kind of get them to see your point of view, which is basically having a conversation before you start fighting. Yeah. We learn later that they're the only night watch that doesn't get destroyed by the general public, and they create chaos within the army and other police forces because they're like, what do you mean there's no violence here? There's violence everywhere else. How can there not be violence here in the worst part of town? And there's like, because we're doing our job. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool how well done this is. I, I'm going to keep saying things are well done. But like, he, he is a master at this craft. Yeah, Vimes is trying to do a billion things at once, and you like, see it like weighing heavier and heavier on him as the time goes on. But like he's trying to preserve his own natural timeline. He's trying to stop Carcer, who's traveled back in time with him. He's trying to protect the people in his town who want nothing more than to see him killed. And he's also trying to stop a, stop a bunch of riots and stop a bunch of people getting killed and also protect people from the government, which is starting to send in the cavalry to take care of things. Pratchett gets really deep into the inner workings of the politics for for this story. And when, when you're reading it, you really don't feel like you're being kind of like these side stories to break up the, the this policing story and you just, you kind of take it as like a, these comical 
reliefs. Yeah, the uh, the message that he's sending, he's not beating you over the head with it. The story comes first throughout this, but yeah, he does. He says a lot between the the between the jokes. And I got a, I got a quote here that kind of goes along with with that, and also kind of introduces you to Veterinary, who is the leader of the city when where Vimes during the time Vimes came from. But at this time, we find out he's in the uh, Guild of Assassins as a student who's a very oddball student. But we, we find out that he is just that much smarter than all of his peers and his teachers. But here, here's a quick quote. Vimes thinking about taxes. Quote, oh yes, tax farming. What a clever invention. Godold Winder. He flogged the right to collect taxes to the highest bidders. What a great idea. Nearly as good as banning people from carrying weapons after dark. Because A, you saved the cost of tax collectors and the whole revenue system. B, you got a wagon of cash up front. And C, the business of tax gathering then became the business of groups of powerful yet curiously reticent people who kept out of the light. However, they employed people who not only went out of in the light but positively blocked it. And it was amazing. What those people found attacks up to and including looking at me, pal. Oh, what was it Venetaria had said once? Taxation is just a sophisticated way of demanding money with menace. Well, the tax farms are very unsophisticated in the way they went about recouping their investment. So, is so that we, we we learn who the the leader of the city currently is, Winder, who is this corrupt politician who's paranoid, seeing assassins behind every corner, and Basically just making life a living hell. He's the reason why there is a curfew. Pratchett kind of takes a shot at taking weapons away by pointing out that the only people that gave up their weapons were a handful of law-abiding citizens that didn't want to get busted later on. But basically the city was still full of weapons and it was kind of a running joke when the, the military goes in and is like, where are all these weapons coming from? I thought the, the Night Watch took all their weapons. And oh, we did, sir. These are just the ones we didn't find. <laughs> so, and then again, you know, you know, taxations, you know, how people get pissed off over being taxed and bad tax systems that they have no say over. So I said, he's saying a lot in a very little area that if you want to read into it, you can really get deep into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, speeding along, though. So things escalate and they escalate and they escalate, and the riot breaks out. It's in full scale, and. Vimes finally gets his opportunity to get back home. He's been working with some monks who are conjuring up enough magic to cast that spell that'll send him back. He's also got to make sure Carsa comes back with him because he's pretty sure Carsa is going to kill his younger self if he stays in the past. So there's a whole thing. Again, he has this is where the second case of tasteful nudity comes in. Uh, he has to basically strip naked, grab Carsa, and at the right time and. It pop back into he, he doesn't present. strip naked. He just strips out a certain armor. Oh yeah, he takes off his armor. But but yeah. because traveling forward in time, he loses all of his clothes because it was going to take too much effort to transport. Yeah, there stuff. wasn't as much magic to transport everything. But yeah, so he rides back. He's naked, and his wife's in labor, and he's just kind of running around the city. He doesn't have time to put clothes on because like he's just he's tired. He's been in this huge battle, and he's still got to. Yeah, but, or, do all this stuff. Yeah. We're skipping a lot here, so we, we can jump back a little bit. Yeah, kind of, uh, kind of like this book. We're gonna be jumping through time. Uh, one thing about the 
the, the time travel that I kind of enjoyed. Because a lot of times, time travel and time paradoxes can dominate a story, and it just gets tedious. I liked really how uh, Pratchett did it in this story, where when the, the monks, the, the timekeepers, telling them, hey, you, you can't screw it up too bad as long as these key things sort of happen. And Sam's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, time kind of figures out itself. Yeah, he uh, takes a Doctor Who approach to it, where as long, yeah, as long as like the major events take place, the paradoxes will sort themselves out, yeah. and everything will be unchanged. The whole point of the monks, as they'll say, is they make sure that that the things that are supposed to happen happen, so they can go in and say Vimes did, or say Carcer did go in and kill young Vimes. They can then go in and try to fix it somehow, which they never really say how, but basically. They don't like to do that because it takes a lot of time and effort, and they're they're already busy enough because time's hard enough as it is to run properly. And they're kind of this paradox where they're outside of time, and they can kind of go back and forth with the whole thing. They don't really age. It feels like they're almost immortal. And but yeah, I did like how Pratchett just kind of yeah, we have time travel, but it's not really that important. It, it happens. So the the one problem I had with this story was how many characters there were and i said if you read the the other books a lot of the characters initially you've read about plenty so you kind of know who they are but you jump back in time and you get colin who's a uh corporal at this time and you you eventually find nobby who is a street urchin but he gets brought in as a lance corporal and you have young vimes but you get eight to ten other cops that you just like yeah like uh was it rust Sergeant Rust. Yeah. Like he comes in halfway through the novel and then he he says and does a few things and then he's gone again. Basically, he's just there to be like a this is what someone in charge should not do. Yeah. And you have like Corporal Coates who just comes and goes as he pleases. And you're not really, you know, he's a bad guy, but you're not really sure where he fits in. And you find out, well, he's a rebel. And his whole storyline was like, you know, what the heck's going on here? And so there's a couple other cops that come in and out that are kind of bad kind of good but you really don't know they have similar enough names that it was tough to keep them straight it gets bogged down here and there with just vimes like doing the whole like cleanup of his crew trying to the ones that are redeemable make sure he gets those ones and get rid of the ones that are totally corrupt it's a little gets a little bogged down yeah but i say yeah there's a couple times i had to kind of go back and read reread a section just be like oh, who who was this again and you know, not that i'm complaining because rereading is still funny <laughs> guess i pick up something you missed yeah yeah so just to kind of close off our summary he winds up back in the present we're closing off our summary already oh yes 45 minutes in oh are we uh, <laughs> okay. uh but, but yeah but, but 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 i got so much more to say <laughs> i know you could like i don't know we joke this could be a two-hour episode uh, but two um, hours. Well, I was thinking like four. I was going uh, like Jocko or Joe Rogan kind of links here. <laughs> yeah, I should have started sooner and gotten a hundred million dollar contract. <laughs> but yeah, he uh, he's back in the present. He, he brings Carcer with him, but they don't come out at the same areas. Yeah, Carcer. Yeah, he eludes them. Vimes. He, uh, uh, it, it, oh, but before we do that, we we had the other the other bad guy from the um, the unmentionables. Don't forget the the captain that he killed because the guy was just a torturer. And Carcer takes over that organization. Uh, veterinary kills Winder as 
truly audacious assassin walking right in the middle of the room. Nobody pays attention because everyone's like, why would an assassin walk right in the middle of the room? They're supposed to hide in the corners mm. and behind curtains. Yeah. yeah, his death scene is actually has one of my favorite jokes in this book because we get to get a cameo from probably my favorite character in all of the Discworld novels, which is Death. So you get to do more quotes than I don't? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to read a Death quote because Death is the best. Oh, I got it now. Okay. So we meet Death. Death's this great character in all the Discworld novels. He always shows up when major characters die, takes them into the afterlife, and he's just very dry and humorless, but sometimes he says things that are funny in a humorless way. So Winder's just died, been executed, and he sees Death standing there, and like he, like he died while he was eating cake. He reala- just realized he died. He's like, oh, he said. Yes, said Death. Not even time to finish my cake? No, there's no more time, even for cake. For you, the cake is over. You have reached the end of cake. Okay. I got one more quote that needs to get put in here. Lay it on me. And this is this is something that I think more Americans should kind of take to heart with the, the flag waving and the rah-rah-rah America when it's outside of 4th of July. Yeah. And we're, we're coming up on 4th of July when we're recording this. Yeah. I know it's... November when you're yeah. listening to it. No better way to celebrate 4th of July than to be lectured by a guy from England. Okay, and so this is the cavalry talking to each other about the barricade that Vimes has set up, and they're trying to decide if they should be attacking the the people on the barricade or listening to Sam Vimes and walking away because there's no violence, no nothing's being thrown. Tom? Yes, Clive? Have you ever sung the national anthem? Oh, lots of times, sir. I don't mean officially. You mean just to show I'm patriotic? Good gods, no. That would be rather a rather odd thing to do, said the captain. And how about the flag? Well, obviously I salute it every day, sir. But you don't wave it at all, the major inquired. I think I waved a paper one a few times when I was a little boy. Patrician's birthday or something. We stood in the streets as he rode by and we shouted, Hurrah! Never since then? Well... No, Clive, said the captain, looking embarrassed. I'd be very worried if I saw a man singing the national anthem and waving a flag, sir. It's really a thing foreigners do. Really? Why? We don't need to show we're patriotic, sir. I mean, this is Ink Morpork. We don't have to make a big fuss about being the best, sir. We just know. So, yeah, a little send-up of uh, patriotism. Yeah. Uh, a very English thing to say to an American, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I guess we're, we're running a little long, Alex says, so we better hurry along. Vimes ends up catching Carcer at the graveyard. He's visiting, seeing all the people that still died, even though he tried to save their lives. Carcer comes at him. Vimes takes him out. Basically stops himself from killing Carcer and says, we're going to have the do this the right way and have the patrician hang you instead. Yeah, so that- it kind of brings to an end that moral dilemma he was having at the beginning of the book. Only to find out that Veterinary was there the whole time doing his assassin sneaking thing and hiding in obvious places. And Fimes realized he was being watched the whole time. And you know, Not that I don't think Veterinary, uh, veterinary would have done anything to him because they... Well, Veterinary would have kicked some field goals. Uh, veterinary, yeah. He, a veterinary, though, would have just been like, yeah, no big deal. Makes my job a slightly easier but still congratulates Vimes and offers him the, the one last thing that Vimes is, doesn't have that, because, like I said, a veterinary is 
promoted him up to commander of the watch, made him a duke so he could marry the love of his life, and he basically gave him more money than anybody else in the city. And Vimes says, you, you can't bribe me with any more things, and Veterinary says, well, how about I rebuild your original watch station? And Vimes is like, son of a bitch. You got me again. <laughs> Basically, the story ends with baby Vimes being born, Sam Jr. The doctor who Vimes ended up having to fetch is the doctor that saved his life and lives of many of his copper friends back in the, the riots. All kinda, in, everything's kind of just tied up with a nice little bow yeah. right at the end. All those plots and subplots come together. Okay, so I know we kind of rushed through that. I would have loved yeah. to talk your ears off even yeah. longer, but Alex yeah, Alex has a long commute home. Yeah. It's 450 pages. We can definitely go on and on. There's lots of subplots. There's lots of, like we were saying, there's lots of characters that we could delve into each and every one of them. Yeah, so, and this, well, hopefully this book, you've read the book. Yeah, this book I absolutely love. What are your final thoughts, Alex? The book is well done. <laughs> uh, no, it's... um. Like we're like we've been saying all along, it's a great it's a farce, it's really good satire and it's set in a fantasy land in kind of a not quite medieval times, but also very like you know, very eighteen hundreds esque vibe to it, eclectic time period. And but it's still like it rings true to a lot of things that you encounter in a modern society. Like, I don't know, this book came out in 2002, and I was just kind of thinking, like, some of the stuff that's happening in the book is very similar to stuff that happened two, three years ago with civil unrest due to overreaching of police actions. And it's very, it's, even though it's getting it older, it's still a very relevant novel. And the fact that it's also a very funny novel, I, I think, is what helps kind of drive its longevity yeah this is still one of my all-time favorite pratchett books all-time favorite books uh rereading this rereading all the books we've read going back into this book i was a little nervous going in like oh what happens when i don't appreciate it as much as i did when i first read it back in college like me with john dies at the end yeah and it's the same with me and that that did not this book did not disappoint this book was just as funny if not funnier uh reading it again the amount of jokes I missed the first time that I now understand, I didn't even realize were jokes, but stuff like, you know, he brought in stuff about the Russian and French Revolution. You know, at the time, I didn't really know much about, but since then, having not being an expert on it by any stretch, but knowing about, you know, much more about it, it's like, oh, I see, uh, I see what he's joking with here, or policing in the 1800s, learning more and more about that and seeing all these little insider jokes he makes about that kind of stuff. It just it, it's definitely worth rereading multiple times through your life just to see what you you missed previous times. Definitely, definitely uh, highly recommend this. Five out of five stars. Five out of five for me as well. I got some questions for you, Alex. Let's see if you can uh, answer them for me. Oh boy, the questions. Oh, yeah. oh no. In an overcrowded world of time travel books and movies, how does Pratchett su- successfully navigate the many pitfalls that up for that trope the silence is definitely <laughs> formulating my answer so uh, it, the general thing is like time travel is done when the writer's out of ideas and he's rather than written himself into a corner and needs to get himself out of it 
there's time travel in this book, but it really doesn't change anything. He's not written into a corner. I think that's a benefit of the Discworld series. Is like each novel, even though it's part of a continuing series, is its own self-contained story. He's not written himself into any corners. He's just come up with a clever idea of how to incorporate time travel into this story without it being it's just like, oh, crap, I need to go back and reset everything. And so I think that's what makes it work. Yeah, I, I kind of liked it. He largely ignores it. It's just basically a, a method to go back and revisit a Night Watch of old and get a story out of there, but not have to... The, the the problem with usually like prequels is you already know the outcome because you're you already had the the story afterward. So this is you're throwing that oh, could he change it or is it gonna you know how is it gonna change or or what and and honestly, a lot of the biggest problem with the Discworld series at this point in the series is Ank Morpork went from a Wild West kind of violent city to a very tame city where uh, between Vimes and veterinary you know they, they civilize the the city to something that's modern looking and you wouldn't be able to have this kind of story the the, the fact that carcer exists he can't survive very long because there's just nowhere for him to hide in the modern city where in the the old city he's able to be, take charge of the day watch essentially yeah he's like assumes a seat of power yeah so i, th- I thought you know basically there, there were you know the way he did it pratchett did it there was really no no downside uh, the Night Watch is made up by many minority species. How does Pratchett walk the tightrope of not pushing a radical view while expressing the po- the points he's trying to convey with minorities? Yeah, I think we, we covered that a little bit. Just It's inclusive without being, you know, preachy. I mean, it, it's, it's hard to... Oh, let me think about it for a second. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's inclusive without being preachy. I mean, like the uh, all the all the like the creatures that have become Nightwatch, like they're gone for the majority of the story, and it's just more about like what it means to be a Night Watchman rather than trolls can't be Night Watchmen, you know that sort of thing. So it's just more like talking about what should a police officer be, and then it it just briefly touches on that any creature can be. Well, we, we, we do have one that's questionably human or not. That is Nobby Knobs, or no one's quite sure what he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the way uh, they describe Knobs in the beginning of the book. Like he said, uh, I, I gotta find him. Sorry. Another quote coming up. <laughs> the never ending <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah, the first description we get of Knobs is uh, Knobs is possibly the best living demonstration that there was a smooth evolution between humans and animals. Something about him that just isn't quite right, but no one can ever pinpoint it. But like, even like, it's, I think it's important that he's one of the characters that's also in the past because he demonstrates like he's this you know street rat kind of weird thing, and he displays more attributes of a, a police officer than some of the police officers in that time. I mean, I, th- I think like I said earlier with a. The cops are kind of a reflection of society, so having all the different minorities, especially as Ankh-Morpork becomes a much more diverse city, getting all those characters in, really delving into what each species, their attributes are, makes a big, makes for a fun race, especially in the other books in the, the Night Watch series. 
because Deatrice, he, you know, he is a hilarious character in the, the earlier books. His troll troll minds are, are uh, quite quite interesting. <laughs> Nightwatch is considered to be less funny than other Terry Pratchett books. Is that the case for you in this book, Alex? You know, it's honestly been a while since I read another or any other Terry Pratchett books. I think there are funnier ones. It's not to say this one's not funny. Like I think, like was it Carpe Jugulum is a very funny book. Color of Magic, like the first one, it's very funny. The handful I've read, yes, there there are some that I laughed at more. Like, oh, Hogfather especially is a very funny one. But uh, this one, it's like we've been saying, it's dealing with serious subject matter and the fact that he's able to still lampoon that and create uh, and putting that story for first that makes you read and then the jokes are there and it's it's still very good i yeah so there are funnier books but this one kind of hits harder than some of them yeah i'd still say this is pro i think find this one is one of the funnier ones i i think there's a lot of dark humor in here a lot of jokes that are a lot of people probably wouldn't find funny but say someone that's a cop or military or first responder might be like that's hilarious because that's just their sense of humor. I think that that's more the difference. People are reading about cops and cop corruption and brutality, so they they're looking at it as like, oh, this is terrible stuff. You can't laugh at that that kind of thing. That's just then they they miss the joke, and because they are so dry and straight on delivered. Because it's kind of like a Monty Python style joke where they're so straight faced, you almost don't know if they're joking or if they're serious. So I, I think a lot of people miss the jokes, but I, I think it's maybe not the funniest. As you point out, a couple of them are just absolutely hilarious. But it's definitely it's probably top five out of the 41 for me for funniest. Uh, what did you think of the big bad? Was, oh, you, you kind of answered, you know, you, was Carcer Vimes true opposite or is he, you know, lacking in some way? Yeah, so he is Vimes true opposite however i would argue that he's not necessarily the big bad as the novel progresses like he's definitely an, a chaotic factor he'd be like you know the uh, the trickster character however the big bad is the i'd say just the state of the night or the police force in angmorpork from 30 years ago that have caused all this unrest in the city and the societal pressures and aggravations though that's like the real big bad that vimes is trying to battle against through the bulk of this story and carcer's just sort of this personification of all those things that he's is the moral dilemma that he's having in the beginning with like what's my role as a copper and then he has to kind of lead all these people through this nightmare situation and that kind of refocuses him when he gets home so carcer's good for that portion but the big battle is a, against a corrupt society that's like the main villain of the story yeah i, I kind of agree the i wish there was more carcer in it i thought he kind of and then i thought his personality kind of changed as he gained power he went from that typical Alex from Clockwork Orange, serial killer-esque vibes to someone that all, all of a sudden, oh, I have power, therefore I can lose it. And it just it, it didn't quite, 
vibe super well. You know, I was almost looking for more of a a Ted Bundy kind of character out of that, I guess. But yeah, I agree. It's definitely he was just kind of the personification of all that was going wrong. Okay, one more question. Cause I'm how much time we're on to now? A little over an hour. Well, that's sure, it. He'll edit it down. He'll edit it down to. Hey, uh, is Vimes too? Over an hour. Yeah. Is Vimes too altruistic and white knighty, or is he a well fleshed out protagonist that is interesting in this modern world we live in? Yeah, he's definitely a well fleshed out character. Yeah, he does have a little bit of that white knight to him, like especially early on when uh, he's just gone back to the past and the entire police force is really corrupt he's got this very hard set of rules that he lives by and he's like pushes that very hard on his team but he's also very complex because he's struggling to maintain struggling to keep the peace as the book says and he's got these moral dilemma like what does it mean to keep the peace and he's got to argue that with himself and he's having those internal conflicts. He's not just like, my way is right, my way is the only way. He has to stop and think about things. And we get to see that internal workings. And that really helps us get to know him as a character. Yeah, I, I feel he's a little too white knighty sometimes. You know, he's not too idealistic for someone that should be a little bit more embittered. But I think overall, he's definitely a well fleshed out character. And he definitely has a strong sense of. Mo- moral that we shall follow i did find his beast that the beast that he kept referencing to as in his inner monologues was a little bit overdone it, you never really saw that beast let loose i mean yeah during the riot when he's just killing the yeah, like, dual wielding swords. swords but at the same time you're almost like what what person isn't going to do that because it was a fight for survival where he's say say when he's tying up the torturer there but not letting vimes young vimes do you know beat the guy or or kill him right there going on the beast the beast the beast was like well the 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 beast never a real true struggle it didn't feel like it even felt forced at the end when he's like he has this opportunity to just kill carcer in the graveyard at the very end and like this internal conflict gets quickly repressed and he does it all by the book yeah it was a not the best way of describing some of his his struggles yeah i think there are other ways he does it in the story that he does a lot better thesis statement time you ready alex this is gonna be a doozy i know we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit but i'm gonna wing it you're gonna wing it okay like you always do yeah just throw these right on you yeah. no um, no no prep time just... yeah i'm winging it my arms are gonna be mighty tired what are the themes in the story, and do they splice together in a way that allows for each of them to be thoroughly explored? And if you want to think for a moment, I'll go over my uh, my, my thoughts. So the themes I picked up on were uh, age and wisdom versus uh, youth and vigor. We have just the blurred lines of right versus wrong. We have societal expectations on that we, we have for the people that are enlisted to keep us safe. And we have... There's one other. I was thinking about themes. Damn it. Ah, I was on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> then we have probably 
protecting yourself as an individual versus the greater good kind of blurring that line between like what do i need to do to protect myself versus what do i need to do to make sure the place i'm living in is a place i want to be in because vimes has that struggle as well with protecting his own timeline and also trying to stop bad things from happening and putting himself at risk to do that okay yeah i i had uh three themes that you know with a lot of minor themes that you you mentioned but my three major themes were the the time travel police ethics and the the revolution uh, drawing strongly off the russian revolution and a little bit off the french revolution uh, you know i thought that all of them were pretty well done together the time travel as i said was kind of a there but not there which was was a bonus police ethics and the young vimes versus old vimes and his growth you're seeing how he has to grow over the years and knowing that if you read the other night watch books seeing that even though vimes old vimes basically does what the john keel had done or supposedly have done for vimes and knowing that where vimes still had to crawl out of just to get to where he was before he went back in time you, know, you go from this idealistic young young man boy basically to this drunken haggard copper who wants nothing but to basically just get eventually knifed in an alley and but ends up pulling himself together and creating a very ethical police force that would rival any of our modern police forces these days as I said, at times there's just so many characters and so much chaos going on. It's it's hard to kind of follow what's going on. So you you kind of lose the themes and you're just going you know looking for the next joke, which nothing wrong with that, uh, by any stretch. But I, I think in the long run all the themes do get there f- fully fleshed out. I think this was a well thought out book, well plotted out book. This clearly it's well done. Yeah, well done. Good job, Sir Terry Pratchett. <laughs> Yeah, we've yeah, got those three big themes. we got you know, some of the smaller themes as well. And, yeah. and he he's able to touch them all and yeah. give them that the attention they deserve. And you can clearly see Pratchett's opinions on a lot of these subject matters that he touches on. But they're never overbearing or condescending if you have different thoughts. He does allow for other ideas to get into the narrative. He's He's constantly pointing out uh, other people's naivety in you know, their their basic thinkings of like, like in the, the revolution oh if we just throw over the government things will get better no we just threw in the exact same person with a different name yeah it's, uh, stuff like that he said no deeper thinking you know in his, his shots like, across communism spow he's saying you know yeah it's, it's great in small communities or times of crisis trying to get everybody you know steak for dinner when you know the it's all about to go bad and they, they literally can't give it away but as soon as the city's in operation again that just goes by the wayside but yeah it's just you know well blended thoroughly covered well done hurrah amen and that's the night watch i did i had one one oh. question actually oh, oh boy We're reversing it here what was your favorite joke in the book favorite joke in the this book last chance for a quote well, I think I've read a few of the uh, the favorites here. Oh yeah, here I got I got one. Let's see. Okay, this is gonna be a long one, Alex. This is my last one. Okay. I hope you don't mind. 
I forget what exactly the uh, uh, I believe they're taking down the barricades so the the main the main riot is over it's before Vimes is being chased through the streets by Carcer and his gang and Vimes is arguing with the public oh no this is uh, they're set is before the riot they're setting up the, the new the, the new barrier and they're they're trying to the night watch is talking to the, the public about their, their barricade and why where he wants the barricade would be better for everyone involved the spokeman or at least the one in front looked almost exactly like the kind of person Vimes had pictured when thinking about the hedge argument murderer erm officer yes sir said Vimes cheerfully what er are you doing exactly keeping the peace sir this piece to be exact you said that there's a rioting and soldiers on the way? Very likely, sir. You don't have to ask him, Rutherford. It's his duty to protect us, snapped the woman who was standing with an air of proprietorship beside the man. Vimes changed his mind about the man. Yes, he had that furtive look of a timid domestic prisoner about him. The kind of man who had been appalled at the idea of divorce, but would plot woman slaughter every day. You could see why. He gave the lady a nice warm smile. She was holding a blue vase. How can I help you, ma'am, he said. What are you intending to do about us being murdered in our beds, she demanded. Well, it's not four o'clock yet, ma'am, but if you'll let me know when you want to retire. Vimes was impressed at the way the woman drew herself up. Even Sybil, in full duchess mode, with the blood of twenty generations of arrogant ancestors behind her, could not have matched her. Rutherford, are you going to do something about this man, she said. Rutherford looked at, at Vimes. Vimes was aware that he was villainously unshaven, disheveled, dirty, and probably starting to smell. He decided not to load more troubles on the man's back. Would you and your lady care to share our barricade, he said. Oh, yes. Thank you very, Rutherford began, but he was outgunned again. Some of that furniture looks very dirty, said Mrs. Rutherford. And aren't those beer barrels... Yes, ma'am, but they're empty ones, said Vimes. You sure? I refuse to cower behind alcohol. I have never approved of alcohol, and neither has Rutherford. I can promise you, ma'am, that any beer barrel in the presence of my men for any length of time will be empty, said Vimes. You may rest assured on that score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my joke's a lot shorter. Of course it is. <laughs> Vimes is looking for a missing ink stand, and he's searching uh, his team's lockers for it and the searching failed to produce a single silver ink stand it did turn up the a book called the amorous adventures of molly clapper in corporal collins locker vimes stared at the crude and grubby engravings like at a long lost friend he remembered that book it had gone around the watch house for years and as a young man he had learned a lot from some of the illustrations Although a good deal of what he'd learned had turned out to be wrong. I don't know. It's the, uh, probably the driest sex joke I've ever read. Yeah. Good times. Good times. Good times. So, times. please, let us know what you think of this book. We would love to hear. We want to know your thoughts and opinions. If you agree with us, what are your favorite quotes? Let us know. Maybe we'll read them in a future podcast. If you really like this book, you will ha uh, get three of your friends to subscribe to us, <laughs> and they'll get three of their friends to subscribe to us, and so on and so forth. 
But before we give all of our outro info, Alex, what's our next book going to be? Or actually, uh, first, before we get into that, so I always interrupt us. Anything else? One last chance. Any comments? I, I think we've we've we, done we, we've we, done it justice. We beat this dead horse to death. Exactly. <laughs> and we didn't even get into the egg jokes. That, that, that was a bit of a stretch there too <laughs> for those jokes. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's Night Watch. Uh, next month will be a book of my choice. This is uh, probably the. Clockwork Orange is probably the most unique book I chose. This is probably the second most, even though it's a retelling of a classic mythological tale. Uh, We're going to read a book called Bull by David Elliott. It's a uh, a really cool book. It's definitely the shortest book that that either of us chose. I've read this book once before. It took me about like an hour to read, so I might actually get this one done in time. And uh, it's very well done. Uh, David Elliott, he's a local writer, where we are at least. He's from New Hampshire. He's the only author out of all these uh, authors that we're reading that I've actually met. And he's a really cool guy. And I'm really excited to read this book. Yeah, so this this book is a little bit harder to find than than normal. But, you know, definitely check it out. Support local uh, authors. Yeah, anything else you want to say on that? Uh, I hope you uh, are looking forward (laughs) next month to a crash course a crash course on poetry oh boy my favorite subject (laughs) (laughs) he he makes it work yeah i i'm going to this knowing absolutely nothing about this book so this should be fun and entertaining for me especially after this uh bonus book we are working on that you will have probably you know possibly already heard but yeah since we're filming or recording these uh, podcasts, you know, out of order from a little bit sometimes. So, we have an email. It's kendallbookworms at gmail.com. Please email us. We would love to hear from you. Any praises, anything we could do better, any you know, book recommendations you have, whatever you want to say. We'll, we'll read them and promptly forget about them. Uh, we are hosted by Podbean. Come check us out on our website. Through that, you can find the website through our links in the description. We have an Instagram, Kendall Bookworms. We keep people up to date on what books we're reading, all that sort of fun stuff. Alex has a few self-published books on Amazon. Check yeah, them out. Check out uh, Paul Plimpton versus Ragnarok. Yeah, yeah. What's the first one you wrote there that I really liked? Oh, the Destroyer. The Destroyer. Yeah. That's that's a good one. Don't read the other ones. <laughs> so modest. Yeah, just buy, buy it, put it on a shelf. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely uh, get you know. So again, support your uh, local authors. Yeah. Come on, yeah. support Alex. Yeah, let's uh, let's get the world out. Uh, let's get the word out there. Spread the word about this podcast. Tell your friends about us. Yeah. Tell three of your friends about us, and then they'll tell three of their friends about us. And, and soon we'll be the, as big as Joe Rogan. Yeah, but you're better looking. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so I guess that's all we got. Anything I'm missing, Alex? I think you got it. Okay, cool. As cool as ever you are, Alex. Yeah. That's bookworms. Yeah. Until next. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, this has been Bookworms. Out.